Tonight we're going to uh, finish out chapter 1, chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin at verse 12, and we'll come down through verse number 18. And I've titled the message, Solomon's Search for Significance. Solomon's Search for Significance. And uh, that's ultimately kind of a broad look of what's going to ha- come uh, from not only this passage, but on into chapter 2, because it's a, it's a, it's a uh, connected passage that flows together. And uh, so let's read in, ver- in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 1, and then we'll uh, come on down through verse 18 and pray we can glean some things from this tonight. Notice that uh, Solomon writes, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, how many in this world want to know that their lives have some form of a significance? That's the natural tendency of man, right? Uh, we all do. Nobody wants to think that their lives accumulate to nothing in the end. This is true for both the believer and the unbeliever. We want our lives to matter. I like this quote by Francis Schaeffer, who was a Bible scholar of years past. He said, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a meaningless machine which will be discarded totally and forever. And yet, what do we find through Ecclesiastes? We learn thus far in Ecclesiastes, in the opening verses, all is vanity in this world. All is empty. All is uh, like a vapor. It is fleeting. It uh, refers to like a warm breath, including our own lives. All is vanity. Now, how did Solomon make that point very clear? Well, we recall a little bit from our last text that we looked at, verses 2 down through verse Number 11 was our last text, but really it centers upon what he says in verse 3. He asks that question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he follows that question by giving illustration, the cycles of life in this world. Generation comes, generation goes, and goes on and on and on, right? But the earth remains. Then he gives us uh, examples in creation, how the sun follows its course throughout the earth, the wind, the water, and so forth, right? goes on to say that there's nothing new under the sun. So he's saying that nothing in this world changes. There's nothing new under the sun, and a person's life essentially fades away into the history, eventually to be forgotten. That's the way it goes in this world. This is Solomon's overarching observation. And from this, Solomon is building his message as he continues in our text. Now, we need to remember that the question in verse 3 really 
is kind of foundational through the book. What does man gain through all of his toil in life? This is what, what is the significance of all of this in life? What does he profit in all his toil and labor and trouble in his life under the sun? Where is there significance and meaning? And so our text kind of continues along that theme, and it begins a new section of the book. Now this section of the book starts in verse 12, but it continues all through chapter 2 to verse 26, the whole of chapter 2. And basically through this section, Solomon's going to give somewhat of an autobiographical account of his life and things he experienced in specific categories of life that he sought to answer the question. Now, in this first little section we're looking at, our text tonight, we look at Solomon's intention of searching out all things under the sun, especially in regard to the matter of wisdom. Now, is possessing wisdom the way to having great significance in meeting? Is wisdom what will change the course of this world and our lives in this world? Now, this may depend on what kind of wisdom we're going to be talking about. There are two different kinds of wisdom that I'll bring to your attention. But I want you to see over the, the, the central theme here of Solomon, that he's a man with wisdom, and with his wisdom, he's in search for significance with that wisdom. And so let's point out two things tonight, just two points uh, tonight to, that will hopefully address the whole of this text. I want you to see, number one, the restraint of earthly wisdom. The restraint of earthly wisdom. Now, we find Solomon's pursuit with wisdom within this, okay? In verse 12, notice that Solomon identifies himself again, saying, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and, in, in, over Israel and Jerusalem. That's a short little verse, but we've already kind of got that idea, so why does he say that again? Well, it once again gives us insight into who the writer is, who the speaker is of this book, all right? He calls himself the preacher, which we recall the word for preacher is uh, what the title is, Ecclesiastes. It means the preacher. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew title that refers to one who calls or gathers the people, one who's addressing the people, the assembly. And so he's called the preacher by means of this. And so he's one who's teaching and preaching to a gathered people in Israel, and he identifies himself as king over Israel in Jerusalem. And this is significant. Well, notice that he's the son of David. He's the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, what happened after Solomon's reign? During the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, what happened to the kingdom? The kingdom was divided into two, right? During Rehoboam's reign. And so there's only one time in which Jerusalem has been the center of reigning over all of Israel, and that would precede the divided kingdom. So that helps us narrow down who's talking here, right? We know it's not David because he's the son of David. We know he's the king over Israel, reigning from Jerusalem. So it can't be anyone after Solomon. It's got to be him. He's the one who fits this slot, all right, as the king over Israel with Jerusalem at the centerpiece. Because after that, it's a divided kingdom. And after that, Jerusalem is the uh, reigning place for Judah, not Israel as a whole anymore. So why does Solomon state this statement here in verse 12? Well, couple reasons I can think of. One is the message and details he is about to communicate are without doubt a po a possible to a king who has great authority, great power, great resources, and great opportunity. 
If anyone could find significance in life, surely it would be a king. Someone who has great authority and and possibility, all right? But what we find is that even the king, even King Solomon and his kingly authority and position could not escape the vanity of life in this world. Could not escape the reality of vanity in this world. I think another reason we find that Solomon mentions verse 12, such a short verse, but notice also that he refers to himself in the first person. These things are important. Now, the opening verse, it refers to Solomon in the third person, the preacher. But you notice this is the first time we see that word, I. I. Because through this text, you're going to see, I did this. I did this. I endeavored to do this. This is a first-person account. It's an autobiography, someone who is telling their own story about his own discourse of first-hand experience in the aspects he brings to our attention. Now, how much greater does a person's word carry when they are describing a first-hand experience? They're not just telling a story that somebody else told, right? Now, if I began to tell you the story of somebody who was out hunting and he shot this great deer and you might think, oh, that's a great story. But if I give you first-hand experience and I can tell you about what I was feeling in that moment and, and how my sights were set on the deer and how I was shaken and I almost missed, then it becomes a whole lot more captivating, right? There's a whole lot more weight behind the account, behind the story. And so Solomon's words here have weight because they are his own experience. They are things he went through, things he did. Now, what does Solomon tell us about this experience? If you come to verse 13, we're just going to come through this text together. Notice what he says. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I want to break down a little bit about his intentions here, okay? His endeavor. What is the end goal of his endeavor? The end goal of his endeavor is to seek out all things that are done under the sun. He wants to examine and experience and look at all that man experiences in life under the sun. Now, what's that mean exactly? Does it mean Solomon is going to try every possible thing that could ever be done by man? I don't think so. I doubt Solomon went skydiving. Why do I doubt that? Because he didn't have planes back then, right? He's not referring to every little detail that could possibly be done, but in a general way, he is talking about the experiencing all the key aspects of life in general that man tries to find significance and meaning and satisfaction in. We see his experience with wisdom, first off, right? We see his experience in pleasure, in laughter, in sorrow, in profit, in accomplishments, in wealth, and so forth. So he's given us experience of what man experiences in life. And so Solomon says that he wants to find out, he's determined to seek and to search all things under the sun. Now I think this is interesting too. The word to seek kind of conveys the idea of depth, all right? The word to search out kind of conveys the idea of breadth. So Solomon Solomon is showing us that he's going to search deep and wide, deep and wide of all that man does in this world, in this 
earth. He's examining with a very thorough examination. When a person is seeking or searching out something, they're unturning every stone that they can, evaluating as much as possible within within a given category. Now, this is something that I seek to do anytime that I'm expounding a text of Scripture. When I'm studying and I'm preparing a sermon, I say, for example, this text, I try to reference as much as possible. I use dictionaries. I look up words. I read commentaries. I read other translations, other texts. The point is to try to uncover every stone that I can so that I can gain as much information as I can so that we can get the right application for us in our Christian life. That's the whole end game here. And that's what Solomon is doing, except Solomon, he's got a pretty broad category, doesn't he? Not just one little text, but he's looking at life under the sun. Life under the sun. He's going to seek out and search out all that is under the sun that man does. Now, how serious is Solomon about this? Is this just kind of a casual side hobby that maybe he's going to try out and, you know, it's just kind of a, you know... It doesn't really matter if he comes through it or not to his full intent. No, notice what he says. Solomon says in this verse, I applied my what? My heart. I applied my heart to this endeavor. The Hebrew word for heart, it, it denotes the center of one's inner life, including the mind, the will, and the emotions. So, So Solomon here, he is putting all of himself into this endeavor all of himself into this search of life under the sun. And as you'll see in summary, he tells us that whatever we do, we ought to do it with all of our might in this world. We'll read this later, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave to which you're you're going. So, So Solomon, he's practicing what he's preaching, right? He's giving his best. He's giving his all uh, to, to, to this search. Now, what is the process of this search that he's doing under the sun? He says he's going to do all of this by wisdom. By wisdom that he's conducting this search. Now, wisdom, we know, is a central theme in this book. And in this particular text, we see the words wise and wisdom for the very first time. And these words are used 53 times throughout Ecclesiastes. They're used 17 times in this section that I mentioned, chapter 1 and verse 12 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 26. And so I think it's also important to note here as we think about wisdom, the kind of wisdom used. What kind of wisdom is in reference here as we come through this text? And I think it's important to note that we see two forms of wisdom in the Scripture. James tells us of a earthly human wisdom, and also a heavenly divine wisdom, right? There is a wisdom of this world, and then there's a wisdom that is of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, we know beyond a doubt that Solomon, he's a man that's been gifted with wisdom, right? God said to Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. That is quite a statement to Solomon's wisdom. But what else do we know about Solomon's life? He did not always use wisdom in a godly way, but in an ungodly way, didn't he? 
He didn't. Solomon lived a portion of his life in rebellion against God, even going after false gods because of the many wives that he took. We'll read about that later. Solomon's pursuit of doing all things under the sun includes doing many things that are ungodly, wicked, and evil. Now, doing ungodly things is not the result of godly wisdom in practice. So I think it's important to note that there is a wisdom that is of this world that's a human wisdom. There's a wisdom that is of God that leads us in the course of doing godly things. Solomon has experience in both. He's got experience in both. Now, Solomon, I think as you look at this book overall, Solomon in his later years of life explains to us in this book, through godly wisdom, what emptiness of human wisdom in the world actually brings. Keep in mind the lens of human wisdom when we come through this passage and through the rest of this book as well. Notice with me number letter B in this first point. We see Solomon's uh, wisdom here. All right, We see his uh, pursuit with wisdom. But I want you to see his perception with wisdom. What's he see with this after he's done this? What does Solomon say of this search he's conducted of all the things done under the sun? Verse 13b, the latter part of this verse, notice what he says. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. An unhappy business. What is this unhappy business? It's what man does under the sun. It's an unhappy business of what man does in his life. All man's toil and labor under the sun is ultimately an unhappy business in the broad scheme of man's life and how this world works. I think Job said it rightly, Job 14.1. What did he say? Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of what? Trouble. What a description of man's life, right? Is this not true? Why is this true? Why is man's life few days and full of trouble? Why is man's life uh, under the sun an unhappy business? Again, this takes us back to the curse of sin in the very beginning. You have to read Ecclesiastes with that in the back of your mind the whole time. This is the result of the curse of sin in this world. God told Adam, we've already read the text, but I'll just reference it for you. Genesis 3.19, he says, By the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How about you, but that sounds like an unhappy business. Sounds like an unhappy endeavor. A man works, he labors, he toils all his life, only to the return to the dust from which he's made to be forgotten, and creation just goes on without him. Continues on, as the last text told us. And we know God didn't make it like this in the very beginning. There was a perfect world and man in his innocence. But man brought this vanity upon himself in this world through sin. Solomon says later in this book, in chapter 7, verse 29, See this alone I found, that God made man upright. That's how he made us in the beginning. But they have sought out many schemes. That's what man has done. So with this wisdom, Solomon says here in verse 14, notice what he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. There again, you're going to see this word vanity repeated over and over throughout that book, throughout this book. That, that Hebrew word hevel communicates this fleeting, 
vapor, warm breath, something that is empty and going away. All is vanity or fleeting. But notice that he also says, with all that he's seen in his wisdom, it is striving after the wind. Striving after the wind. Who can chase or even catch the wind? Is it even something you can do? Is it possible to do such a thing? You can't even see the wind except for the things that the wind is affecting, right? You can hear it. Kind of like what Jesus said in John 3 about the new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can, you can hear the wind, you can, but you can't actually see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, right? Our kids love to blow bubbles, especially outside. When you blow bubbles outside, what happens? The breeze starts to carry the bubbles away, right? And the goal is to try to catch the bubbles. Well, they sometimes can catch the bubbles, but the moment you win, that was carrying the bubble. The wind just goes on. You can't grab hold of it, right? You can't do that. And, and so it is with all things in this life, including human wisdom. Now, Solomon doesn't mean that human wisdom is pointless, but that it, like everything else, it's also passing away and fleeting. It also does the same thing as everything else in the world. You see, ultimately, does it matter how humanly wise and knowledgeable a person may become in this world. What happens when they die with that knowledge and wisdom? It goes on, right? Unless maybe they penned it in a book, but even that fades after time, right? And even in our world, we know how corrupted knowledge and wisdom is among those who are fallen in their own depravity. Even those who have their walls and offices lined with degrees... (laughs) All this wisdom and knowledge that they profess to have, and yet they don't have the answer for life. They don't. The most brilliant man have no answer for the meaning of life. Their human wisdom is vanity. It is empty. Now listen to these two quotes of two well-known intellectuals in our world. I believe Stephen Hawking's already passed away, but listen to this. Stephen Hawking says this. He's, He's an astrophysicist. We are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet in a very average of an air, a very average star. Can you imagine living with that as what you thought life was about? How depressing. No purpose, no meaning. That's what his wisdom got him to, right? His human wisdom. Talk about a depressing view of life. Richard Dawkins, a evolutionary biologist, still well-renowned today for his for his science, quote unquote. Human existence is lacking all purpose. Lacking all purpose. Well, that's what evolution gets you to. A life of no purpose. A life of no meaning. That's what human wisdom gets you to. It's vain. It's empty. Now, is this really true? I mean, this is what we find. Human wisdom can only take one so far. This is why we need divine heavenly wisdom comes from the one true God who created this world and did give particular meaning and purpose, as we'll see as the central theme of the book at the very end. Now, Solomon closes this first reflection, all right? Now, you look at our text, you can break it down into two reflections. He gives one reflection and then closes it with the proverb in verse 15, and he gives another reflection, closes it with another proverb in verse 18. But notice he closes with this proverb in verse 15, and notice what he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That's a proverb. What Solomon mean by this proverb? Think of something crooked that cannot be made straight. 
you handed me a, a bent piece of steel, and you hand that to me and say, make it straight, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you it ain't happening. I can't do it. It's outside of my power. I can't bend steel. I can't make it straight. Just by way of illustration, what is crooked refers to this world, refers to things in this world that essentially are hard to understand. The problems of life, the trials of life, the troubles of life. There are many problems and troubles in this world. There are things that may be wicked and corrupt or things that we just simply don't understand about life. Do we not see a lot of this in our day? Why do horrific tornadoes wipe out towns? Any way we can fix that problem? That's something crooked you can't make straight, right? Why is there heartbreaking works of evil? Like what we saw on Monday. School shootings and, and genocide by wicked rulers. Can we rid the world of such things? Is there any way to just permanently put an end to that? There's not. Taking the guns away ain't going to do it. You know why? The problem is in the evil heart of man. You can't fix what is crooked, right? What about, we think about the injustice in the land. Will it ever be eliminated? We could go on and on about crooked things in this world, things that we can't fix but are problems and we ask questions about them. And Solomon plainly says that wisdom, no matter how great it might be, even that of Solomon's wisdom, the wisest man to ever live other than Jesus, could not fix or figure out the crookedness of this world. In fact, he says later on in the book, Ecclesiastes 7.13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You see, sin brought those crooked things into the world. God ordained that that'll be, that happen as part of the uh, historical plan, redemptive plan, but sin ultimately, we understand, is at the core issue here. It is the root problem. Sin brought those things to the world, and fallen sinners certainly can't undo those things or figure out all those things. And for some inscrutable reason, God ordains that mankind should endure painful experiences in this present fallen order that is part of life in this world. He also says in this proverb, what is lacking cannot be counted. What is lacking cannot be counted. There seems to be something missing in this world, right? In our lives. It's like an account that doesn't seem to add up and you can't make it add up. It's like trying to take five blocks and five, five blocks plus four blocks and make them equal ten blocks. Five plus four equals what? Nine. Right, Jubilee? She's been doing math in homeschool. However you might count, however you might line up the blocks, they'll never add up to ten. You can't make it happen. We cannot, with all of our human, in, human wisdom in this world, we can't change the foundational realities of what happens in this world. No matter how much wisdom one might have, they can't change reality or figure things out completely. This is a result of the curse of sin. But just because all of this is impossible for us to change with wisdom does not mean there's no hope. We note in verse 13, with this is the first mention in the book of a very important person, and his name is God. God. Solomon uses the name for God, which is the Hebrew Elohim. Now, if you know Scripture, there's, there's several names of God, and there's different Hebrew names of God, different Greek names for God. 
But the name Elohim is significant because that's the name describing of name of God in Genesis 1:1 at creation. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And why why not use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, for his people? Because this book goes beyond just the people of Israel to the entirety of the human race. It seems that Elohim is used to bring the entire audience's attention to the universal creator God who reigns over all of life under the sun. You see, we have a God who is in control and can make what is crooked straight. And ultimately, that's what he's going to do in the end, right? You see, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That's essentially what history is. We look at it's all crooked, it's all crooked, but above and beyond our understanding, there's a sovereign God who's working a perfect purpose to the very end. He can do that because he's sovereign. But the focus, of point is that, focus point that Solomon's bringing to our attention is that wisdom, human wisdom, it is not enough to give man significance that he craves or to change things he wishes he could change in the world. Which brings us to number two. Notice with me the remorse from earthly wisdom. The remorse from earthly wisdom. We see the restraint of earthly wisdom. It's limited. It can only do so much. But now we see there's a remorse with it. And we see again that Solomon makes a reflection, a statement here, as we come to verse 16, that's similar to the opening of the last section. <coughs> Let me point out Solomon's credentials with increased wisdom. Solomon's credentials with increased wisdom. Verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, is this true, that he possessed such great wisdom? Absolutely. Scripture testifies as such. His wisdom was so great that people from all over came to hear his wisdom. 1 Kings 10, 24, The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Now, I want to point this out. Solomon doesn't say this to boast or flaunt his wisdom. It's not the reason he's saying this. He is saying this to enhance the point that he's about to make. Now, if Solomon did not have this great wisdom and knowledge, then the rest of what he's about to say really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight, does it? Now, I've played basketball with some young men who in times past they would talk up their game, you know, and act like they were the best. And then I'd get out there on the floor with them, and I realized how empty that talk was, right? Like, dude, you can't shoot worth nothing. Why are you turning the ball over? You said you could do this. Those who talk up and then can't perform, that kind of takes away from the weight of their words. But Solomon here, he's not puffing himself up. He's giving substance behind the reality of what he's about to tell us. He's simply stating what God had given him, and how this is important to the message he's communicating. Now, what has he done with this wisdom that he possesses? Verse 17, notice what he says. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, he says he's going to know two things, two categories here. He says, I applied my heart to know wisdom. That's a given, right? God blessed him with the wisdom. He sought to know it to the fullest. But he also sought to know the opposite side. He sought to know madness and folly. This is the opposite side of wisdom. 
Now, just as wisdom and knowledge are synonyms, so too are madness and folly. With the latter two, madness and folly, meaning not the study of insanity, but actually the pursuit of pleasures and immoral actions. They're to be equated with evil. Now, we've already mentioned how Solomon did did not uh, always walk in godly wisdom. He entered into an era of madness and folly, rebellion against God. And let's read about that, just so you get the context and understand his experience. What's going on in his life? 1 Kings 11. Let's, let's read this passage briefly. 1 Kings 11. We're going to read verse 1 through 8. You read the rest of the chapter, and you'll see more what happens as a result of Solomon's rebellion. But let's read it just to, so you see the big picture here with Solomon's life, him experiencing madness and folly. <coughs> now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. I can barely handle one. Can you imagine 700? I just figured I'd throw that in there. I love you, Bethany. That's not a slant against you. But you men you understand what I'm saying. One spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife, is plenty. There are a handful. But Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. That's the reason he's, that God gave that command, not to marry these foreign women. It wasn't about race, it's about religion. And notice verse 4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their God. You know, you read about Solomon and his great wisdom earlier in his life, and then some of the things he's explaining in this book, and you think, surely this man would never uh, have such a description about his life. But here you have this guy, same man, this man who has the most wisdom ever gifted to him, but yet in his wisdom, what does he do? Goes after the ungodly way. You see, madness and folly that Solomon experienced. He lived both sides in life. He had lived as the wise man who loved the Lord rightly, and he had lived as the foolish man who forsook the Lord and lived godlessly. Now, how did he ultimately go down that path? I think this is an important note in our text. You're going to see this throughout this text. He, he repeats this. I said in my heart. I applied my heart. He's listening to his heart. How wise is it really to follow our own human heart? It's not. 
Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet, God says to the prophet, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet that's one of the, that is one of the most pervasive counsels of today is just follow your heart. That is one of the worst things that you can do is follow your heart. Why? Because your heart is fallen and corrupt. It will lead you in a human wisdom realm, which is ungodly. You're not seeing the bigger picture, what's most important. But thus you see with Solomon, the human wisdom in play over against divine wisdom. Charles Bridges rightly puts it this way. I thought he put it well. Here, but here he lost his path. Talking of Solomon. He sought to know wisdom as the rest of man, thus putting the gift in place of the giver. He allowed wisdom to be put in place of the one who gave him wisdom. But all of this contributes to Solomon's credentials for what he's saying. What does he conclude about this search in wisdom, this human wisdom he's got? Notice with me letter B, Solomon's conclusion of increased wisdom. Solomon's conclusion. Verse 17, the latter part of this verse, he says, I perceive that this also is what? But striving after the wind. Striving after the wind. It's empty, it's pointless, it's meaningless. Like everything else he's already mentioned and will further mention in the book later, it's all striving after the wind. The great wisdom of Solomon couldn't deliver him from the vanity of life on either side. Life of the godly wise or life of the ungodly wise. In fact, Solomon points out next what much wisdom and much knowledge actually do to a person. Verse 18, look at this. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, how can that be? How can wisdom bring vexation? Doesn't wisdom do the opposite? How can knowledge increase sorrow? Shouldn't we grow in knowledge? Again, we must remember the category here. This is about human Wisdom and human knowledge over against divine wisdom and divine knowledge. You see, the more a person may know in this world may actually increase their sorrow and despair of life. You think about, I think about this, the innocence of a child. How much they have no clue about. They don't have a clue about things in this world, do they? Yet, they're sheltered from those things. I think of Spurgeon. His only care and concern is that he gets a bottle. <laughs> he gets some food on time, right? Spur- Spurgeon is, is not, not caring about or worried about or sorrowful about. He doesn't know about bills that have to be paid. He doesn't hear about the evil things that happen in this world. He has no clue what happened on Monday. Totally non-existent in his mind. He has no knowledge of it. No clue about the condition of our nation. Bad things that might happen. The threat of nuclear war. He ain't worried about any of those things. He's sheltered. Oh, to be a child again. <laughs> what you don't know can't make you sorrowful. But once you know what once you know what you didn't know, you can't unknow it. Wisdom and knowledge are somewhat of a mixed blessing, one commentator put. To gain wisdom and understanding is to gain a clearer view into the tragedies of life in a world marred by sin. So knowing more in this world does not make a person happier. It doesn't fulfill the need for meaning and significance. 
The world tends to think that it can get, if it gets more wisdom, if it gets more knowledge, it can fix the world and therefore fix our lives, right? But the world only views through the lens of human wisdom and human knowledge. And in the end, what's Solomon saying to us? All this human wisdom and knowledge is vanity and striving after the wind. This is the testimony of the wisest man to walk the earth outside of Jesus. He says all this wisdom and knowledge, it doesn't solve a thing. And thus we find what scriptures say about all this. And I'll close with these words, these quotes. The Lord said in Isaiah 29, 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wives shall what? Perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God's going to overrule the wisdom of their men. Human wisdom perishes. Ultimately, the only thing that matters in this frail human life is knowing the true God who is the sovereign over creation in our lives. And this is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. We've preached this text before, but thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord let not the wise man glory in his wisdom I think Paul summarizes this very beautifully in 1 Corinthians and I'll close just by reading this text to us 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 through 31 but I want you to notice as we read through this text notice the contrast here wisdom of the world wisdom of God how they intertwine, and which one matters. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's quoting that Isaiah passage I just read to you. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why has God chosen to work in all these ways? 
Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you find through this text? contrast of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God and which one matters, which one wins in the end, it's the wisdom of God. In His wisdom, He has chosen to save us, not by our wisdom, but by His. And that all is centered upon Christ. So as we conclude this passage, from the lens of earthly wisdom, we see a grim reality of life under the sun. Wisdom doesn't change the hard realities of life. It doesn't change them. Increased wisdom and knowledge increases sorrow, can increase sorrow. But there's another lens of wisdom which we ought to look through, and that is a heavenly wisdom, wisdom that we find in Christ alone. This wisdom is the perspective of seeing the world and life through the gospel. Only in this wisdom can we actually have and find true significance and meaning, which is ultimately what Solomon is going to through the big picture of Ecclesiastes. So I pray this has been a text that has encouraged you and challenged you in your faith. Solomon's search for significance shows us there's no significance in the earthly. Even him, with all his wisdom, couldn't find it. But rather we find that it must be in Christ who is